everyone. Welcome to 12 Questions. This is Anna Valenzuela. Holy shit, I finished that eighth step I was working on. Oh my God, she's going to make amends. What? And I am so excited. I got that fresh, just spent 24 hours with my sponsor, Glow. And I'm really excited to uh, talk to Mr. Dave Yates. Oh, I'm, I'm waiting for that nine from you for what you did. You know what you did. <laughs> Shut up. Anyway, uh, how's everybody doing out there in Twelve Questions Land? I mean, it sounds the like the jokes are going to hit. Hey, you yeah. know, we're um, doing it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you want to read that clarity statement? <laughs> sure do. Welcome to Twelve Questions. We're a podcast where we believe growth and recovery isn't just for clean and sober people. Our mission is to share our experience with guests who do the same. We're not affiliated with AA, NA, or any other 12-step organization. 12 Questions has absolutely no opinion on the use of drugs or alcohol by anyone. We're simply two people that happen to be in recovery that want to give hope to anyone struggling. Although some of our guests may be clean and sober, some of them are not or choose not to divulge. The purpose of the podcast is to learn more about ourselves and others. We only hope that you can learn something about yourselves by listening. Huzzah! Yay! Yay! Uh, and I'm very excited to talk with our guest today. Not only she came As in full I. face, beautiful, looking amazing. Oh my gosh. Starting her day. It is a Tuesday. It is a Tuesday and she's already dressed up. I can't even. Um, who are we speaking with today? Hi, I'm Rebecca Rush. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Hey, Hello. Rebecca. Good to see you. Likewise. How's this pandemic treating you? These days. Yeah. I'm okay right now. Yeah. Like in today is all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally. Uh, every day is like, a, well, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> like, and that's good enough, I guess. <laughs> you just get so used to just like, well, I'm here today. That's, that's where we're at. Yeah. Yeah, I have moments where I'm like, I wake up and I'm like, ooh, I'm awake. And then I have moments where I wake up and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's do this again. <laughs> so i love it i love it we're so, all just surrendering to the moment <laughs> so let's hop in yeah let, let's let's hop into them speaking of surrender rebecca what does surrender look like to you uh i guess it's like either i've done everything that i can do right and like i'll realize that like oh there's nothing there's nowhere to go from here like and then i realize that it like doesn't matter like nobody else cares if I succeed or not like it doesn't nobody's thinking about me like and, and whatever the outcome is like it it truly doesn't matter because like when I'm not surrendering it's like I get caught up in this like fake like life or death thing in my head like this thing has to happen the way that I need it to happen or else like I'm gonna melt into like a puddle or something and and then like I guess surrendering mostly is like when I can withdraw my energy from like mm. trying to force and like mm. and I'll be like okay like the universe still knows you want that but like it's almost like when I'm not surrendering I'm putting something further away from me on this pedestal where like it's energetically not even a match to me anymore because I'm like if this thing could happen and then I try to remember all the things that I tried to like micromanage into existence and 
are they still making me happy? No, (laughs) you know, or like part of my life now, like there was a time where I thought having an apartment was a thing other people could do. And like, that was not something that I would ever be capable of. Like my best, you know, I couldn't like meet a stranger without being like, maybe they have a basement I could live in because I'm not capable. But now every day I just live in an apartment that I have a lease on and I don't think like, hey, guess what? You were wrong about yourself. You can have an apartment. <laughs> yeah, right. it's totally up the winds. Yeah. Yeah. And I was I was a guy on the couch for a lot of my pre-sobriety, you know, like just, well, this is good. Like these people are letting me sleep in a place you know, that's a couch. Like I lived on an air mattress in Chicago at one of my best buddies' houses because like the exchange was he paid the bills and I would buy food when I could and booze when I could and he let me stay on an air mattress and I thought that was pretty okay. So then fast forward to sobriety and uh, moving out here to Los Angeles when I was about oh, four or five years sober, my friends had a couch for me to land on you know, when I got here to look for an apartment and stuff. And I can't tell you how bad that was mentally for me to be the guy on the couch again. Hmm. Like I had to surrender to the fact like you're not that person anymore. You are literally just staying on this couch because your friends love you and they want to help you find a place. Yeah. But like every morning I'd wake up and I'd hide the bedding because I'd like, I, it's just like, I, I want to, it's like I'm not here. Like I don't want to be here. Like I don't want them to notice that I'm even here. Like I wanted to be a ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like I'm not that person anymore. Like I had to surrender to the fact that like you know I was doing that just to get to where I am today. But it was a mind fuck. Yeah, I. Go ahead. I was uh, surprised you asked me because I was like I went through this whole spiral of shame share after the clubhouse sober show um and I was like Anna thinks I suck and like I'm being selfish because I I, I'll tell you I read this story that someone wrote about me like I ended up in the psych ward and this guy wrote a personal essay about my like his experience of me and uh and I was like making comments and I thought that would be like a good thing to try out but you can't see your face on clubhouse so afterwards the person who has the room is like Rebecca we couldn't tell when you were reading and when you were track and I was like oh my god like what have I like what am I doing like everyone thinks I suck like I had to like go on all these walks I had like two days of anxiety over it I was like really? oh god, you have a clubhouse show you're being a shitty host I haven't I'm like I'm not saying hi to the crowd I'm like have I even done one recovery joke on my recovery show no I have not um, I just went through and I'm like, oh, cool, Rebecca, this is great. You're just racking up sober comedians who think you suck. No, Rebecca, first <laughs> off, that was funny and brilliant and amazing. And, and second off, I booked you independently. So, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I like you. So uh, yeah. I, I, I had no knowledge of you bombing on Clubhouse. Um, that was never a conversation i in fact you were on my list of people to book and i and dave got to you first so i'm i'm so thrilled that you're here and honestly i had a little bit of shame around that show too because i ran the light a little bit and i and i was like oh no and then i realized the way that it's set up is it's it's hard not to run the light you know what i mean so it is but getting into that it, it is interesting how comedy can feed the insane thinking that we have like just we're naturally prone to insane thinking and i assure you 
your, your set stuck out to me because it was so interesting and wild, but that's exactly the forum it's supposed to be like tested in, you know, what, if you can't, if you can't run that in a, in the vacuum of clubhouse, where can you run it? You know, like, so and clubhouse is like a radio show, right? It's like, uh, sorry, I'm kinda. an old and it's, no it's, it's, it's more no, like a podcast no one's booked, than anything. Yeah, no one's booked me on a clubhouse. So <laughs> Is it just so audio only or is there? Yeah, it's audio only. Yeah, yeah, it's audio only. And so it's not like it's a really interesting forum and everybody was really warm and welcoming. And I didn't get I didn't get that vibe at all, girl. You were you crushed it. That story is infinitely interesting. And I just love that you I I remember specifically being like, has anyone ever published your four step? Like, that's crazy. Like that was that was crazy. And also his there was a a line he mentioned something about your weight i remember specifically and i went up last so i didn't get a chance to comment on it but fuck that guy to death <laughs> talking about a woman's weight get the fuck out of here <laughs> you're lucky yeah. to be around any woman <laughs> it, yeah, he called me thick hipped which is like such a just gross thing to say like it just i have I have no hips. I have, I have no hips. I have, I have thighs and a butt that are masquerading as hips, but I don't technically have hips. I would give, I'd give a quarter pound of my titty meat for some hips. So wear that with pride. Just be like, I'm thick hips. What, what? I've been been telling the audience on stage that I have a juicy dumper and they seem to like that. A juicy dumper. But anyway, anyway, so I understand that insanity. I totally understand that insanity and being so vulnerable out in these streets, you know, early in recovery is incredible. So like what's been one of your most insane moments either in or out of recovery, you know, feel free to tell that crazy story if you want to. Okay. So I will tell you the the moment and then I'll tell you the backstory of why it's so insane. So I'm sitting in Delray beach with my husband, I'm having a vodka soda and he's like holding my hand and he's like, you should move back home. I got us a new car. The pool is clean. The dogs are going to be so happy. Like we're going to be fine. So back up like a year earlier, he and I had gotten in a fight where he broke my finger because I wouldn't let go of the last bag of cocaine. Like my finger is still fucked up. Like it never healed right. And then I ran in front of him because like I was We'd been up all weekend doing cocaine, whatever. It was my birthday month. And I just wanted, I had been setting coke aside so that when he went to work, I could enjoy myself because he was really annoying and would like be in front of the door, like someone's pissing on the front lawn when it was raining and like that huh. shit. So I was like waiting for him to leave and I would go sit in the garage, and, like wait for him to go away. And he like came in the garage, he's like, you have more coke. And I like looked up at the rafters where I'd climbed up into the rafters to hide my coke. And I like, we raced and he like peeled my fingers until one broke to get it out. And then I ran in front of the door and was like, you can't leave. You have to give me the Coke back. He grabbed me by the hair. He pulled me across the house by the hair, had his foot on my stomach. He was like pulling my hair up and putting my foot down. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, I'm about to die. So I like kicked him in the nuts and ran outside. Our pool was black. He like threw me in the pool. I got out of the pool. I called my therapist because I didn't want to call the cops because the cops might take my cocaine. 
And, um, and then he got in my car and started driving around the block and he would stop in front of the house and wave the bag of cocaine at me and I'd go running out and then he'd drive off again. <laughs> and we did that for like an hour before he called my dad and was like, she's high on coke on a Tuesday at 7 a.m. And I got a Tuesday. Daddy, you know I don't work. Like that was gonna make it better. Um, but I was just trying to be like, he bought the cocaine. It's not my fault. So I got like a restraining order. I got a lawyer. I kicked him out. I got back together with him. I cheated. I went to rehab. In rehab, I got a boyfriend. I had an abortion with that boyfriend. I like found out I had a tipped uterus when I bled a whole chunk of my abortion out on the white couch at Sober Living during like our house meeting. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. As you do. I was fucking my husband in like juicy couture dressing room so that he would pay my sober living rent while I'm dating this guy. I'm working at a bar because I could totally handle it. And then I relapsed with this guy and like smoked crack, did heroin, which I'd never done, but that was his jam. He was like a trust fund kid. So there's always another rehab for him. And uh, we went back to my sober living. We made a sex tape of like smoking crack and having sex. I went back to my sober living. I told them I was meditating on the beach with my sponsor grabbed some laundry to go back to this motel, left my phone. They sent the sex tape to my husband because they were mad at me and just in my phone, like pretending to be me. He has the sex tape. He's him and his new girlfriend are threatening me with the sex tape. And then we're like, we should get back together. (laughs) By the way, girl, be fine. We're going to get together. I worked in boutique treatment for exactly your population, like socioeconomic group. And this is 100% almost every client I had. <laughs> yeah, I remember in treatment, they're like, you're not getting your Lexus back. I'd be like, whatever. <laughs> I like made me, they made me sell some of my designer purses like for meds and they wouldn't let my parents give me money because that was like, it was therapeutic community at that point. Whoa. It was like a big thing. And I'm not still bitter. I sold my wedding dress for like fucking sleep meds. Hey, you know what? That's, That's what we're gonna do with title that for an dress. album. Uh, I sold my wedding dress for sleep meds. I think I think that is uh, a pretty good album title. That so. tras that trazodone ain't cheap if you don't have the insurance. Well, thank you for knowing it was trazodone that I'm not psychotic enough to be on Seroquel. I appreciate that. Like I feel seen. <laughs> I know. I know. I told you I worked 10 years, 10 years. I know my meds. <laughs> I also have like too much underlying eating disorder shit to be put on Seroquel. Like I'm not waking up with like a pan of brownies on my head and having that be okay. When I was in rehab, we used to have trazodone wars, which was we would take our trazodone and then we would see who could, who could stay up through it. So we'd sit yeah. in the community room and stare at each other like, like a fucking standoff until people were just like nodding out and like passing out in the chairs and then like the orderlies are like, all right, you guys got to go to bed, you know? But if it's like, if you push through that initial knockout of the trazodone, you get high. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what, when I did that, everybody said I was triggering them in my sober living. Oh, poor <laughs> sober like a living. I a Red Bull and I'd be like, hey, hey, hey. Mom's you got a Red Bull dope. Whoa, you got Red Bull in your treatment center? Good for you. No, that was in sober living. I remember when they when I got to Quarterway, I started I went from like zero to like drinking four to eight monsters a day. I was like, it's gonna oh. be fine. 
I once had a girl come up to me when I was at work and she was like, Anna, I think I need my PRN for, for anxiety. And I was like, okay. And she's holding the biggest Red Bull you can buy. She's holding the tall boy, tall boy, like the big one. And I said to her, I said, just out of curiosity, I'm still getting the med, you know, legally I'm doing my job. I said, just out of curiosity, you had any water today? And she says, she says, and granted, this was a person who had been laying by a pool for four hours sun tanning and she said i'm too busy to drink water and i said okay um you've been laying by a pool for four hours and she said my mind is too busy to drink water and i had to take i started laughing so hard i had to i had to like i was like i was like i'm sorry i'm not laughing at you i'm just laughing i'm sorry you just you win you win <laughs> go get do you won you got me that's crazy and i can't argue with you enjoy <laughs> have a great day <laughs> so it's uh yeah it's wild out these streets but that is an insane story i can't you know the domestic violence the and i'm so glad you got into treatment because that's you know that that helps work through a lot of that trauma that's so bananas it's like I love that you had, I love that it, he also had a girlfriend, like the whole, like also the girlfriends, like this, it's just, that was a melee of, of the like insanity of the disease. 27 then. And she was like 24 and he was what he was seven. He was like in his mid forties. And I remember being like, so insecure over the fact that she was like 24 and I was all washed up at 27. Mama, mama, never, never. I, I mean, so just like, how do you, I don't even know where to go. Like, how do you make decisions? Like with all this history, you know, you've had this whole adult life, you know, ripping and running, you know, having a great time fighting over cocaine bags, hidden in the rafters. Like, how do you make decisions today? Well, first of all, that was 12 years ago, um, that story. So there's been a lot of insanity that I like couldn't blame on anybody else, which was really formative. Um, but I consult, I'm a big consulter, but I've gotten better with that where I realized like phone calls are like my number one coping mechanism and like comfort technique a lot of times. And I'm trying Mm. to like break away. Mm. And it's, it's weirdly harder in recovery because I have more people willing to talk to me. Mm -hmm. Like I could talk to like 10 great friends about the same thing. Mm -hmm instead of like and meditate on things I have a pendulum so it's like a piece of crystal that I'll be like okay am I gonna is this literary agent gonna fucking take me on um and then I'll put things on the back burner I fucking hate making decisions they make me so crazy even like little ones I'll get like frozen like I was trying to decide whether to go to I'm gonna go work in a legal brothel in a few weeks and I'm like, do I go to this one or this one? Do I go to this one or this one? This one or this one? Well, the one that's going to let me bring my dog. That's where we're going. Um, but it took me, I just, ooh, I hate when a decision feels like, you know, when they like feel so big and you're like, I couldn't possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I had, I had what I used to call last meal ever syndrome. Every decision I made felt like whether it was the s- smallest decision of what am I get, what am I going to eat at this Chili's or like you know, big life decisions because I, I lived in fear 
that every decision I ever made was a mistake. And what I came to find out is that decisions are just decisions and life on life's terms is just life ter- life on life's terms. And there's no right way to do this thing. And I know that all sounds really cliche, but just remembering that I've never gone without, I've always had a roof over my head, food, in my stomach, people in my life. And I too, I love that you mentioned the, um, the phone call thing, because we can get in our decision paralysis, we can get into this place where we start running through the committee and we just love the attention of running through the committee, the committee, calling all the trusted sisters, keeping everybody informed on our drama. And then it becomes more about the song and dance around the decision rather than the action required. And, um, and it, it is a point in recovery where you start to realize like, I need to pray and meditate. I need to write a pros and cons list. And I need to also trust my higher powers got me. And that's why, that's why this is our third question is it's really a higher power based thing. It's more about like, it's way easier to make decisions when faith in the higher power is there. It just is. And, um, and, and I think that like, that's what you're, you're coming into now is understanding that like, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to do this whole song and dance. I love that you called it soothing. Like, cause there's a difference, like you can do external soothing and you can do self-soothing. And I think we have to have a, a strong, that's now they call it self-care. You know what I mean? But I think we need to have a strong relationship with both things. I think that's, that's dope. That's, that's amazing. You're learning. What a great, what a cool thing to be like, what a cool place to be this, always this, this, position of, of learning and growth. That's amazing. Yeah. If I've like, I, uh, talked to my, like there are times where I'm like, I've talked to my sponsor. I've talked to like my best friends. I've made a therapy appointment. I'll talk to a fucking psychic and I'm still like, I don't know what to do. Well, then I'm like going to do nothing right now. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And you can do that too. It's like, there are certain decisions in my life, um, that I make very slowly. And, uh, there's a reason for that, you know, like I have a history and like relationships, for example, I have a history of making very rash decisions very quickly. And, um, so understanding that I take relationship decisions very slowly, you know, I try to do the contrary action with that decision-making process and, um, and also to not stress out and remember that like, if I order the ribs or I order the burger, baby, it doesn't matter. It's not the last meal I'm ever going to eat. I so, love that last meal syndrome. I totally get that. Oh, I, I used to say to people, I'd be like, I'd be like, well, well, if the, if the ribs and the burger got in a fight, who would win to the <laughs> waiter and like the waiter. And one day my friend in recovery was like, you're so fucking embarrassing to go out with. Cause, and, and he sucks. Like, don't get me wrong. Like that response sucked. He doesn't suck. That response sucked. Um, but I realized like, there is some truth behind that, that like, I, I can, I, I have to start learning how to have faith in even the smallest decisions. And also like recognizing that not every decision is the end of the world, you know? So I love that. I think so, uh, the decision-making process too, is just a, like, I know like around 12 step rooms, we talk about a higher power and it's like, as as non-believer as I've been sometimes throughout my recovery, it's just like trying to make decisions on just my own self-will has always proven poor uh, for this alcoholic. Um, but when I when I throw it up to the universe or 
what I've I, I use is like the group of drunks, that whole acronym for G.O.D. Or like when I'm in pain, I run my decision making through a bunch of different drunks that I trust. And that helps me get closer because like regardless of the pre-sobriety or, or in sobriety, like when I'm emotionally fucked up, my decision making goes out the window or it becomes self-will decision making. You know, so to learn the peaks and valleys has been important for me throughout my recovery. Mm-hmm. And go ahead, Dave. Oh, no worries. I was just going to say, like, it just it leads into it leads into for me, like, I I'm always shocked that it works when I do what's suggested of me and I've been doing this for 10 years and to still be shocked by the program. I mean, I don't know what that says about me, but like learning to just trust that it has has always proved, Oh yeah. Yeah. This works. You know, like this is shocking, but Oh yeah, you know, this dumb, dumb. And then you get to take that information and put it into your bank of self-knowledge which kind of gets us to our fourth question. Like what's been the most surprising thing that you've learned about yourself so far? Okay. First of all, I love your cat. Uh, second of all, okay. So it took me, it happened last year, almost two years sober for me to realize that I have OCD mm. and um, cause I have intrusive thought OCD. So mm. it's like basically this kind of OCD where you think your body is going to like do things you don't want to do against your, like, Mm-hmm. It's different from regular anxiety. It's like we're on a plane, like regular anxiety might be like, what if the plane gets hijacked? But like the kind of OCD I have is like, what if I hijack the plane? Mm-hmm. And like, I'll go through the whole emotional. When I was like, when I lived in New York, I used to think I was going to throw myself in front of the train, but I was like, well, everybody must think that, you know, it's New York. Everybody's miserable. And like when <laughs> I was married, I used to think I was going to wake up in the middle of the night and like stab my husband. And I figured like also everyone married must feel like that. But uh, in sobriety, I started thinking like on long drives that I was going to throw my dog out of the car. And like I for a while, I was like, I must be haunted. Like I'm haunted. There's like a ghost telling me to do this. Like that made more sense to me than like you have OCD Mm -hmm. Uh, because I knew that I didn't want to. But I recently I've started to realize like, oh, he's older. And like, what if this is your brain trying to like take control over the fact that he's going to like. Cause I've had him through everything I just talked to you about. I've had him. So he's like 14. He's seen some shit. I haven't even talked to my dad for 14 years straight in my life. Like he's the most consistent being that I've been on good terms with. Um, so that was like what I read this book by Courtney Amister. And she talked about how she thinks she's going to stab her roommate. And I was like, Oh, that's what I have. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I'm going to, and a lot of people I've talked to, like they, my friend thinks she's going to melon ball people's eyes out. And I'm like, oh, well, mine's not that bad. Like her- she's been watching Squid Game. She's been watching that Squid Game because that's a. No, do they do that the... in there? Yeah, there's, a, there's a part. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but uh, there's, some squ- there's, some, there's, some squid, there's some Squid Game shit. Yeah, your anxiety. And that's why a lot of television like that, I watch a lot of like kind of 
bonkers, like really intense programming. Cause I have an anxiety, I have generalized anxiety disorder and intrusive thoughts are part of that as well. So I remember going to the grand Canyon with a bunch of comics and just having that flash of like, what if you jumped in? And then I was like, you dumb, dumb. And I just, I always am just like, okay. Or, um, like intrusive thoughts are, are all part of that anxiety family of, of, you know, disorders like OCD and, and, um, and, and, and the like, and it's totally normal and natural. It really is. It's very strange how intrusive thoughts can be, um, happening. It is good to express them. It's always good to ask ourselves like, why, like, what was I thinking right before that intrusive thought popped into my head? And it's usually like, I don't express it. I don't explicitly experience fear, but I'll know that there's some internal fear because my body or my, my intrusive thoughts will kick up. I'll be like, Oh, this is a high thing you could fall into. Let's not do that. And like, so that's, what's really happening is my brain is expressing a fear, but it's expressing it. The wires got crossed and it's expressing it not as desire, but as possibility, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think to some extent, too, that when I've been in mental duress, my brain is like trying to figure it out, like trying to think its way out of the pain or to the duress. So it starts making up these stories. Well, it must be this, you know, because it's not like a wound. You know, like if you cut your like if you cut yourself on something like you're like, all right, there's blood, there's a cut that pain makes sense to me. But when it's just internal, like whether it's, you know, chemical in your brain or like emotional stress, like it's bleeding, like, like, you know, metaphorically speaking. And it's like your body tries to make sense of pain in all kinds of ways. And. I mean, I've eaten all the best hallucinogens and sometimes your brain will come up with bone sober, the most insane fucking shit that you could never even trip to. I mean, yes, sames, sames, all of that sames. Yeah, it's very like, and I, I do want to say that there is a difference between suicidal ideation and ideation of like violence or, you know, being um, the 5150 thing of like being a... a a risk to yourself or others. There's a big difference between that and, um, and, uh, intrusive thoughts. It's, it's like a blip, right? Rebecca? Regular intrusive thoughts are a blip, but like the kind that I get, it's like my brain will go through the full emotional experience. Like, so I drove somewhere without my dog in the car that was a long drive. And I was like, Oh, ha ha ha. Not even going to, and then I saw these people on the side of the road and I was like, what if I murdered them? And I kept driving and I, my, in my brain, I was like, how am I going to clean? Like these people are a mile behind me now mm-hmm. and I'm still driving and my brain's like, how am I going to clean the blood out of the grill? Did anybody else see me? Like I've done it. And like my brain will go through the hole and that happens with my dog too. And that's what like people with the, like, it's, we all get intrusive thoughts, but with the OCD, like your brain will grab onto it and you'll go through the full emotional experience as if you did the thing. Yeah. What is, uh, what is your therapist and your psychiatrist said about it? Um, you know, the person that helped me the most was actually Maria Bamford because she also has intrusive thoughts. So like we talked about that, uh, at the Grove a few weeks ago, like we did like an interview. So it just, I feel like the best about it when I'm talking to somebody else that has it, cause like they know that I don't really want to throw my dog out the window, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and talking to my friend Jill, exposure therapy 
has been my, I feel like my therapist, maybe I need, maybe I'm just still seeing her because she doesn't charge me a lot. She doesn't seem super helpful with this kind of stuff. Um, but talking to other people who've like been dealing with it longer and being like, okay, I'll do it. Like if I drive around in the car with my dog on my lap, like that's exposure therapy mm-hmm. and like let the anxiety rise and rise. And then I feel grateful that I don't have to like do like what my friend has to do, which is sit next to her sister with a melon baller and like not enunculate <laughs> her or like Maria who has to sit with a best friend in a butcher knife. Like, and I'm like my, and then I feel better. I'm like, my exposure therapy is not as gnarly as theirs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like when I get around people who suffer similar um, experiences of the mind that I do, I get more honest because it's not just me. Like, I feel like, and that's that the beauty of sometimes with 12 step programs or finding people with the same trauma or afflictions. And when you start talking with them, you can get more honest because for me, it feels like it's not only me anymore. So I can get a little bit more honest and get a little closer to, you know, uh, I don't want to say comfort because maybe that's the wrong word, but like a, a semblance of peace. You can sit with, you know, it. yeah, you can hold yeah. space for whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of leads into our next questions. Rebecca, how honest are you with yourself and others? Man, I used to be like, I guess like super delusional and in denial. And then I just keep like finding like one by one. So I've gotten, I've gotten so much more honest. Like even when I do my 10th and I'm like, was I dishonest today? Like my daily inventory, sometimes I'll be like, well, to the best of my knowledge. And that to me is like radical honesty with myself. Like, I'm like, if I lie today, I'm deluding myself about it. And like, that's okay. Um, I actually broke up with a friend of 26 years recently because she's like living in denial. She's a, she's like addicted to alcoholics, you know, like that's the whole thing. Mm, yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm in a, a long distance relationship with this guy and I hadn't seen her in like three years and she's just on FaceTime with this wasted guy all the time. And he's like, they sent me in the car at work. And she's like, well, your boss should know never to call you after 10 AM on a Saturday. I'm like, right. Cause everybody's wasted too wasted to work at 10 AM. Yeah, they should, they should know, they should know better than to fucking get in, get in the way of my fucked upness. And this is somebody I've been friends with since I'm 14. And like, I guess when I was more dishonest and I would also, this person would always co-sign my bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it became to a point where I was like, oh, I have to like, it's not that even I walked away. I have to tell this person, like, it's too triggering for me to be exposed to somebody in their alcoholism who has no interest in like doing anything about it. And then I guess she decided to like choose that over a friendship, which is fine. Like that's her addiction, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But that felt like a big piece of, of self-honesty for me Mm -hmm. being like, I'm no longer willing to like vibe with this kind of like life denial. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes with the surrender and acceptance that like, you can't change that person. You know, it's not going to get better. It's not going to get different. It could get different, but not anything you do is going to force that to happen. Well, then I got back to my phone thing. It's like, oh, this person's available for you to call all the time, which is like a coping mechanism that you overuse. So like, why are you really holding on to this? I guess that was like a whole thing with honesty. Why am I holding on to this friendship? This person's like, I've told them about Al-Anon. If I tell them one more time, I have to go to Al-Anon. (laughs) <laughs> ah. you, know, you can only tell someone about Alan on three times before you have to go like that yeah, it's like a, 
it's like the candy man. Like when exactly. you say the candy man's name three times, you end up in a church basement. <laughs> so then I had to be like, why am I still friends with this person? How is it? And like, look at like, oh, cause she's home all the time in Connecticut and like she'll co-sign your bullshit and she'll tell you it's okay to like use too much CBD or whatever. Yeah. She's yeah. in, she's in her codependency. You're feeding her disease as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big advocate of letting go of relationships and friendships that no longer serve like a mutually beneficial thing. And that doesn't mean I don't help or won't be there for friends, but you get to a certain point where you're loving them into the ground. That's, mm-hmm. You know, that's a phrase that I, I, I picked up along the way. It's just like, especially around the rooms or with relationships, it's like I have the potential to want to throw on the Superman cape and try to save people. Mm-hmm. And in essence, I'm literally just loving them deeper into the ground where it's like to step away and to learn how to love from a distance or to be like, you know, we had a good run, but it's just like, this ain't good anymore. Like life is way too short to keep swallowing shit sandwiches year after year and there's no change. Like, mm-hmm. it's like that, it's like that colloquial phrase, like nothing changes if nothing changes. And I hate that shit sometimes, but you know, for me, the hardest part about letting go of friendships like that is like the, the feel, the feeling of failure. Like I couldn't make this work or I couldn't, you know, make this better or I couldn't, you know, that's why I qualify for <laughs> aforementioned uh programs i i do believe because we it's all just do. you know yeah. it's it, it's it's people pleasing but it's also like you know when you've denoted yourself as like well i'm the helper i can help you know like uh, if i i gotta be of service you know and then there's there's just comes a certain point where what is it really? Are you being of service or are you satisfying some insanity that just dwells inside of you that it's never going to change, mm-hmm. you know, but that's just my own s- silly brain. Well, well, and I, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I feel like it goes hand in hand for me with like owning my shit and like my feelings. Like, cause when I'm being dishonest, it's easy for me to like blame and like I quit roast battle recently because I was up there like being called fat and old and a whore. And I was like, you sh- I would be mad at everybody else. I'd be like, these judges and their internalized misogyny or like this and that. Or I'm like, you signed up for this. Like you signed up for this deep level of disrespect. And like, it doesn't feel good anymore because you don't hate yourself. And when somebody says something horrible about you, it doesn't like track the same way where you're like, that's right. I am a fat whore, you know, like it's not. And I was like, oh, you can just quit. Like you can just stop doing this to yourself instead of being like, and this person did this to me. And then this person did this to me. Cause that's like my dishonest, like vibe of like, I'm just this helpless victim and everybody's doing these things to me. And now I'm going to have to call 15 people and tell them about it. Yeah. I did roast battle one time and I, it's not for me. Uh, and I was roasting a dear friend of mine who we've known for years. And that's the only reason I agreed to it was because we actually knew each other, you know? And so I wrote some real good jokes. He wrote some real good jokes, but like I didn't win. And that's not the reason I don't do roast battle anymore, but I literally had to apologize to his wife. Like one of the jokes I had was like, you know, most people know this, that, uh, you know, Doug Stanhope got 
Brett's wife a job here at the comedy store. And I just want to know how many more times he gets the fucker before you get past here. And it made me feel like a piece of shit. Like it was a good joke and it landed in that space. But I was just like, I don't like, I'll help people write a roast joke, but I don't like doing this. Like, I don't like that. Don't make me feel good to fucking tear into someone like that because then i'm just like well I, I i owe this person an amends but it's like well this is the format you're just doing what you're supposed to do but i'm like that doesn't line up with who i am as a person today mm-hmm. like because i went up to her and i apologized and she's mm-hmm. like you're fine don't worry about it it was a good battle i'm like but you don't understand how bad i feel because it's like i don't do that shit anymore like i even have to catch myself in like regular comedy shows that like when i'm hurting I can have independent thoughts in my brain because I've been doing it a decent amount of time where like, if there's a drunk heckler, like I have this thought like, Oh, I'm going to rip out their throat and shit down their neck and it's going to ruin the show. And it's like, that's not who I am anymore. Like where, when I, what I am hurt, I want to hurt. And that environment does nothing for that defect of mine, which is when I hurt, I want to hurt. Yeah, I and I I'll I'll say this. I remember doing season two and getting off stage, and my sponsor was backstage, and she grabbed me by the hands and she said, "Baby, you never have to do this again if you don't want to." And I was like, "She goes, you know what's so fantastic is they can't give you anything else. They gave you the thing. You did it enough to do the thing. You did the thing, and now you're done." And I did it twice after that. And I remember going home the second time and being like, and looking at my partner and being like, I'm done. And he was like, really? And I said, yeah, I'm done. And he was like, okay. But it was, what was the mind fuck of that was for me. Cause, cause I, you know, hitched my, hitched my career to that, to that show for so long that, um, I, you know, I had to experience a lot of fear and anxiety around going into the wilderness of doing something different than everyone else around me, you know, doing the, doing the thing. Sometimes our, our recovery program or spiritual program requires us to walk into the wilderness. Everybody else around us is doing the one thing and they're getting that money. They're getting them credits. They're getting that thing, you know, they're getting all the cash and prizes, but I know my higher power talks to me. I know my higher powers had moments where my, and I can't, I was so mad at God. Cause there were moments where I felt my body just go, no, you're not going to do that. You are not going to ghost wrote ghost, write jokes for that person. You're not going to do this, that, and the other thing. And, and I, and, and career wise, I was like, what a mistake. And then three years later, I find myself being like, you know what? That was the right decision. That was the right decision. And I have to trust God. And it's scary. It's scary, especially in entertainment because of the scarcity mindset. And again, scarcity mindset is just fueled by fear and anxiety. Um, So I applaud you. And this leads us into our next question. How do you experience fear and anxiety? Oh my God. So it starts, or I notice that I'm in it when I'm in like a loop of like this story. And it's a story of like falling short. And it's a really fun story because I'll be like in the past and then the future and then the past and then the future again and then the past. I'm never here. And I'm just like spiraling back and forth out of, and it's just, it's always the same story. I'm falling short. 
I embarrass myself. I fuck this up. These people are doing these things to me. Life is over and I've failed it. And like curtains closed and I'm never going to be. And I'm like an embarrassment for trying. And I actually also don't try hard enough, which is also, and it's just, it's all that looping. And like, and then I get to like this fun place where I'm like, this is going to kill me. These emotions are going to murder me. And then whatever I do to try to get away from them, that's actually the place where I could die. But I'm like, let's not think about that. And then if I can get myself to like stop the story part and like force myself to get into my body, then I find it like it's in my stomach. It's like this feeling of like, oh God, it's like something coming on, but it's almost like, you know, we've all been there. Yeah. I'm so relating to what you're saying. That loop is so my, that's so the roller coaster of my brain. Yeah. 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 So I come from the loop to like into the body and then I like let the things like, and then I have to like force myself to breathe. And then it starts to like calm down a little. Yeah. One of my biggest anxieties today is that like, I feel like time's running out. You know, and I think that's got to do with the death of my father because he was 59. And I've talked about it on the podcast before, but like it's this overwhelming sense that, well, I'm going to die at 59. Time's running out. You got to go, go, go right now. Like sleep when you die. Like you got to get it all done right now. You got to keep pushing. You got to. And it's not so much the grind in comedy because I've broken away from that mentality but it's just like life stuff. Like, it's just like, I feel like time's running out. So I have to experience all I can so that I can say that I, I did it before I meet my demise the same way that he did. Like, that's one of my biggest anxieties today is I'm experiencing this, like, you know, um, it's called thanatophobia, which is like the fear of death, you know? Um, Mm And I, I believe it's like a Greek thing from Thanatos, like a, the, the god of death or whatever. But that's like, it's a real thing that I have to talk with my therapist about. It gives me anxiety. Like my own mortality gives me anxiety. And, you know, it doesn't cripple me. Like I can still move about my day. But if I let it sit there long enough, it'll it'll create a lot of poison for me. It'll create a lot of poison, like mental poison, where it's just like, fuck, I just don't want to feel like this, you know? And it's not about like picking up the drink or a drug, but it's like what we were talking about earlier. Like I got to call people. Like the only way for me to get the poison out is like when I show up to meetings and I share honestly, and then I talk to people who actually know me and it like, like my brain is a poison machine with all these thoughts and anxiety. And like by talking about it to people who get it or by doing this podcast or things like that, it's just like, it, it, it leaks the poison. Like it's like bloodletting for me. And that's, that's how I try to cope with the anxiety that I have currently. Yeah. I'm, for me, that's, for me, that, that fear and anxiety, that brain, the aforementioned brain poison, it feels like the fuel for my character defects. And some character defects I just like have, and I'm like, oh, girl, I like you. Mm-hmm, you're fun. And then some character defects, it's like this compulsion. It's like, I'll find myself in the character defect being like, why, how did I get here? And that's usually the fear and anxiety ones. Like, what is your, what is the character defect you've, uh, or defects you've had the most trouble, like letting go of? Well, first of all, I want to just uh, say oh, yeah. your segues are so impressive. 
Thank you. Thank you. We've done this for a couple hundred episodes, girl. We, we, we figured it out. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it though. So smooth. I, uh, I take things personally and, um, that's like my sponsor would say that my only character defect is acting out of fear over faith. And I mean, that's everyone's only character defect, right? That's the umbrella. But underneath that, there's all like the fun things. So expectations, like unrealistic expectations of myself and other people, but like the taking things personally is, is fun because like, I'll do it in a whole range where like, I worked with a difficult headliner that I pitched about in front of Dave, I believe in a meeting. Um, and I went, I went on this, neither confirm or deny that I went on this journey with it where at first I was like making it about me in a bad way. Like she's heard something bad about me and that's why she's treating me like this. And then I had to be like, Rebecca, what did she do? Talk to your mother? Like nobody, like, that's the only way that would be true. And then I went from that, like, I'm less than taking it personally all the way over to like, she's threatened by me because I'm a real comic and she's just like a caricature of what New York comics think LA comics are, you know, no material, all personality and like a lot of Mexican jokes. So like, that's the caricature. And like, she's threatened by me. I'm real. I'm like a fucking storyteller. I'm, and I'm all of a sudden I've gone from like, uh, my mother and her are talking shit about me together and I'm not good enough to open for her to like, she can't follow me. That's the problem. And like the whole time it's like, it's just a bitch. She's just a bitch. She was a bitch to her last feature. She's going to be a bitch to her next feature. That's why she don't have anybody on the road with her. Cause Rebecca, she's Rebecca, just call and tell me how you feel. No, I'm kidding. I go, I mean, even like the host for that weekend, I was in this like whole thing of taking things where like the host was like, my Wednesday night show, I was supposed to headline got canceled. The producer was like, oh yeah, like you were supposed to sell tickets. And I was like, what, what, what? Like, you know, I thought you had a crowd. She's like, no, no. And I was like, what? And I like crumbled in on myself. That show got canceled. The host was supposed to drive me to New York from New York to Connecticut. And she's like, well, I need to go to Vermont tomorrow. So I'm not going to drive you. And then I was like, well, if I had better credits, my opener would drive me. Like it was all about me in a bad way. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And I, could, I, 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 I have one, a lot of that, but I still was like, wanted to be upset about it. Like I had already arranged fans to pick me up at this train station, take me to the show. Like mm-hmm. I saw the problem in like five seconds, but I was still like, just really making it about, about me in a bad way and then sometimes in a good way, but like just that range of taking things personally and thinking people are like mad at me when they're like not thinking about me. Juicy complications, not even drama until you get there. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like a delicious, like, Ooh, life on life's term showed up. And now I have something that's annoying to me and like just biting into that. Ooh, Ooh, girl running into that narrative. I think the cross section of comedy and alcoholism is the egomania with the inferiority complex and like again it it is it is most apparent in me when i'm in emotional pain and turmoil where it's like the past three weeks you know i've been dealing with a lot of hurt 
And it's brought me back to that place of where I first got sober and I did my first four step when I first, when I first learned that I have unrealistic expectations. Like until I did that first four step, I didn't think unrealistic expectations. I thought my expectations of those around me were completely realistic because it filtered through this, well, Dave would do it this way. So they should too, you know, and fill fill in the blanks with whatever that is. But it's like, it even goes as deep as like, well, because Dave would drop anything and help someone. Uh, that means everybody should do that, you know. And uh, I'm having to re- revisit my first year of recovery in 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 these past three weeks to remind myself of, you know, like you're in pain, but you live far farther up the road than most people. So, like, don't have unrealistic expectations of people coming to your rescue. Because even though Dave would go, like if if Anna, and I know she would do this for me, but like, I'm just saying, like, I'm just using this because it's an example. Like if Anna called me after this podcast and said, I need you here, mm-hmm. I would drop everything. I'd cancel everything I was doing and I would go and I would help Anna. And she's done it for me in the past. You know what I'm saying? I helped you but move, not- man. Mm. <laughs> and I'm a grown man and that'll never happen again. I felt so bad <laughs> receiving help as a 35 year old man, uh, to move. I'm like, that's, that's some pre-sobriety shit, bro. Um, now you had to call a Mexican. You needed a Mexican there. I'm going to say it. I'm going to make that cliche Mexican joke. You need a Mexican there to show you how to get that shit up there in one trip. (laughs) But like for other people, like not everybody has the same relationship that Anna and I have, you know, Mm -hmm. but like, here's the thing. Like, so say I needed Anna here and I called her up and she couldn't drop everything for me, I would go into this fucking spiral of, see, Dave, fucking, that's why you don't make friends. That's why you don't get close to anybody. That's why you don't get vulnerable with anybody. That's why you don't ask for help. That's why you handle all this shit by yourself. And that's why you feel the way you fucking feel. That's why she left. That's why they hate you. That, And this is with fucking coming up on 10 years sober. I have to stop that fucking wheel of insanity and realize that I have a character defect of unrealistic expectations even now because like I'm in a state of pain that is akin to the pain I was in when I first got sober. This is after a 10, 10, almost 10 years stretch of sobriety. So like accepting that within myself, that this is a character defect that I do have to turn over, that I do have to catch it. And I do have to go like, like, I'm going to have to, I'm going to go buy a nice guest bed. So if someone decides to come visit me, they have a place to stay, not saying that they will, but I'm going to do this in the event that someone decides to come visit me, you know, and, and like, I have to, I have to keep it piecemeal like that, or otherwise I will go into the fucking, the, the, the defect tornado that is my brain. Unrealistic expectations I've discovered work in both directions. I expect people to be better than I would be and worse than I would be. And so either way, I'm just like, well, see, I told you so, you know, and it's, uh, and it's crazy. It's crazy. It's such a crazy making thing. But for me, like getting out of that, a big part and a big thing that happened for me around 10 years was, uh, acceptance, like, and, and forgiveness. I went through a big old, inventory, the hardest eighth and ninth step I ever had to go through around that time. 
Um, and, and it got me into that space of forgiveness. Rebecca, how do you experience forgiveness in your life today? Whoa, another fucking amazing segue by Anna. I just real quick want to clarify yes, that I don't get in it. cliche when people make fun of their own culture. I think it's cliche when white people make fun of other cultures. Oh girl, I love it. I love it. Um, and, and it can't, you listen, no, it can't li- listen. If you're listening to this and you're a comic and you're doing this joke, I'm half I'm comics ain't trying to be better. No, no, no. Comics listen to this shit. The fucking comics ain't trying to be better people. I'm half Mexican and I'm half white, so I'm a human Chipotle. Like if you doing that, stop, stop. Everybody's got that joke. Knock it off. That's a training wheels joke. You're better than that. Anyway, (laughs) just go up. I this is what I say. I go. I'm Mexican. If you were wondering what kind of brown I am. That's a, that's all I say. That's all I say. I was just like, if you're wondering what kind of brown I am, here I am, and it, and only if it's relevant to the joke. Anyway, so yeah. But uh, anyway, you're so cute, Rebecca. Oh my I, god! Yeah. I, like first year jokes, like I'm Russian and Polish. So because I'm Russian, I like vodka, and because I'm Polish, I didn't write a punchline. <laughs> <laughs> that one's funny. <laughs> Forgiveness. Um, there's a few. God, it might even be Louise Hay. There's a few go-tos that I have. Um, and one of them is saying, like, I forgive you for not being who I wanted you to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgive oh, you and I set you free. So first for forgiveness, I got to zoom out. I got to zoom out and be like, and you get into like the generation, like my mother did this to me. And then it's like, well, how did her mother treat her? Like, what mm-hmm. was she given? Like, you know, even like sometimes I'll imagine my dad being like a little kid with a ball in this driveway, all but playing all by himself and being sad and lonely. Like imagining people as little kids is really helpful to me. Mm-hmm. And like, whatever, because here's the thing, either something happened to that little kid or they have a psychopathic brain and either way, like I got to keep it fucking moving, you know? And most people don't have psychopathic brains, right? That's pretty rare. Even mm-hmm. though everybody who's ever like had an ex thinks that they do, but it's really pretty rare. So most people, something happened to them, you know, and not everybody makes it out. And I try to like, remember that not everybody makes it out, that it's really hard to go against society, which tells us like to do this, you know, have a job and do this and, and these things will make it okay. But like, I think in the normal world, like recovery kind of looks like you're like repainting the shingles or some shit. And like, Mm -hmm. we got the house, like real recovery is gutting the house, but trying to remember that for other people, you know, their journey of self-discovery means like they use moisturizer now and that's their mm-hmm. whole journey. And that's okay. You know, and just trying to like, I can be upset that somebody didn't apologize to me for something stupid. And then I can get to a place where I'm like, okay, what the fuck happened to that person where they can't even say, I'm sorry, I didn't call you back. Like, that's wow. Like, that's hard. Like I can't and then try to imagine like being in that kind of mental state where you have so much shame that you can't even admit like a really simple mistake. And I tell you, like, first off, I'm, this is my, my campaign for people who've been in quarantine. If you're feeling comfortable, work the steps again, what's the worst that can do. And so I had to put my money where my mouth is and I did it. And I was dropping an eight step with my sponsor last night. We were going through what was going to be direct and what was going to be indirect and everything. And And there was a moment where a lot of what was coming up was I behaved in a self-centered manner or um, they didn't meet my expectations of who I thought they were. And that is so big. That is so, they didn't meet those expectations. Um, Defects came out and was like, hold on, 
I signed on for some expectations. I don't know if you know that you signed on for some expectations, but uh, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a bully. You want to talk about a Latina cliche. It's like, Oh, you want to date Brown women? You'll never know peace. All right. We will roast you. We will roast you into cleanliness. There she goes H- headlining with those Mexican jokes. Hey, again. Here we go. You will never know peace. You will never, you'll be like a compliment is like, you know, three roast jokes. Like we, like we will, we will roast your ass into some shit. And so like I, you know, having to own that, that like, just because my expectations aren't met doesn't mean that I get to behave in a self-centered or even, um, you know, verbally combative manner. And, yeah. um, I don't get to just be intimidating even though I can. And, um, and that's, that's, that's such a, and also just about the, I love what you said about imagining them as little kids. That's so beautiful because, I had a sponsor tell me, she was like, always remember that the people you hate in your life, like if it's your boss or whatever, there's one thing that they do that you would adore. And she was like, my boss buys his mom a crystal vase every Christmas or like some piece of, you know, ridiculous housewares. And she just loves it. And she goes, my boss sucks, but he loves his mother. And that is to me, his admirable quality and oh go ahead go ahead Dave no I just I, I was pointing my finger because I, I I had a I had a, a it brought up a memory in me but continue sorry I, I yeah the, for the people yeah. listening I sometimes hold up my finger when I've got an idea uh yeah like a fucking I do I, old time old timey prospector when we fought when we finally post these onto Patreon you'll see me do when I am really touched by something I turn into the balloon man outside of a furniture store and start waving my arms around <laughs> like a puppet uh, but yeah, I just, I love what you said about that. Cause it's, it is, um, you know, it, I think it wasn't until generation X that some of these generational curses and traumas started to break for a lot of our family members, you know, and how intimidating and scary it must be to look at your children and see them, see them spiritually, uh, taking charge and clearing the slate, you know, when all that's familiar to you is the pain and the trauma, you know, and like to have some, to have, to have, to picture those people that can scare us as little children playing with a ball alone, you know, or hiding in it. My, my dad, for example, like his dad died in front of him when he was seven years old, a cancer, his mom worked three jobs downtown. She didn't have time to discipline. She hit your ass with a broom, you know, she'd hit your ass with a, with a, with a belt, you know, and he did his damnedest not to repeat that kind of behavior. So it's like, we're all doing the best we can, you know? And I love, I love the way that you put that. It was beautiful, Rebecca. Thanks. I do have one other Go ahead. forgiveness thing that I do that I learned from uh, Tara Brock, who's like, I think Eddie Pepitone turned me on to her. He was like, she's a real serene bitch, but she's a meditation instructor and she's got the most soothing voice. But she taught me how to do meta meditation, which is loving kindness meditation. Mm. So you'll like sit and imagine like a happy place. Like I like to use the Washington Square Park dog park. And like you're your higher self and you like invite people in and you start with people that you don't have complex relationships with and you like hug them and you're like, may you be happy. May you be free. May you find peace. And then you start introducing people that are like more complicated and like you don't have to hug them all, you know, somebody you're really mad at. But like doing that helps. I guess that's kind of like the pray for them kind of idea. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love when it. I first got sober, there was a, a guy at the meetings that I went to 
who like added me on social media. We were just acquaintances and he would always try to like roast me or make fun of me. And then when I asked him not to be like, Oh, you're a comedian. You can't take a joke. You know? So like one day, like he was commenting on a a post that I had and he kept like writing like homophobic shit. Mm. Like that's gay. Or like, I think I had a mustache. He's like, you know, you're sucking dicks with that much. Just like, and I, and I DM'd him, you know, and, and, and this is this is like a like a early fifties year old man, and I DM'd them like, "Hey man, that shit's not cool." Like, uh, I keep deleting stuff that you post like that because it's like, one, like it's homophobic as shit, and two, like you don't know me like that, bro. It's not like we hang. You've never come seeing a show of mine. You don't talk to me outside of the meetings. Like we are not friends like that. Where you could even get away with poking at me. And it was all like, oh, you're you're a fucking comedian. You're supposed to take a joke. And then I like, no, no, no. I'm a human being who also happens to be a comedian. And I get to I get to decide what people can say and not say to me because it's me. And 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 then like I blocked him. And I was talking to my sponsor about it. I'm like, yeah, fucking Steve's like a real piece of shit. Like he was doing real piece of shit things to me. And my sponsor goes, Steve used to be in a biker gang. And they used to hear, or they used to, uh, they used to hurt people and they used to run drugs and shit. And like, this is the best Steve's ever been. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not good, but like, so I have to ask myself that question nowadays. It's just like, what if this is the best they've ever been? It's still not good. Like, it's still not awesome by any means but like Mm -hmm. who am i to say this is not this person's best and that's what that's what 12 13 years sober look like to this motherfucker and it also taught me that when i'm 12 or 13 years sober to never be that crispy you know and and to remind myself this is the best he's ever been and who am i to say that this 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 is not their best you know so that's that's kind of where i go to forgiveness like the quicker i can get to that forgiveness place the less 10 steps i have to do (laughs) Mm. but we're, we're moving right along here my transitions are not smooth today um but uh what is the most surprising amends that you've either made or received uh can I, okay i have a couple um i'm going to tell a story of a not amends which is i know my mom's in the program because i saw her name on a women's phone list in a meeting in connecticut but that's the only way i know and uh my aunt once called me and was like why hasn't she ever made an amends to me? And I was like, oh, get in line. She's never made an amends, period. So I saw my mom for the first time in seven years when I was home last month. And I just like kind of told myself, I'm like, oh, she's probably one of those like fellowship thumpers. And then the next day my aunt's like, I heard your mom sponsors other women. And I was like, oh, I'm so grateful that God didn't let me know that before I had lunch with her. Cause I just would have been sitting there the whole time. Like, oh, do you have your sponsees skip the ninth step too? Uh, we're in line mother, but I still haven't made my amends to her. Um, which I thought I was going to. So that guy that I told you guys about that I, uh, had an abortion with and smoked crack and heroin and made a sex video. He called me to make an amends while I was in the middle of like a five day coach coke binge in Connecticut. And I was living in New York. I was literally, when I got the call, I had thrown myself face down in the backyard at a tree base. And I was praying to Joan Rivers to like relieve my misery. I was so deep in a coke binge, like of each line is making it worse, but I can't stop doing more lines, like really fun. Praying Um, to Joan Rivers is a whole, 
that's a that's a fascinating that's a that's a that's a deity right there. That's wow. I mean, I know there's people that still pray to Joni. So I mean, he wouldn't give you more than you can handle. Um, and he wanted to make this amends to me for the sex tape, the abortion, and shooting me up for the first time, and you know, just normal amends stuff. And uh, I accepted it. And then he like has a kid now, and I was like, haha, you couldn't convince her to have an abortion. Shouldn't have fucked a Christian, but. Uh, and he's like, I'm so sorry. Like, will you ever like, what can I do to make it right? And I was like, it's okay. Like it was a long time ago. And then he's like, I got a new necklace. Can I show you my necklace? And I was like, sure. He sent me a f- nude. He sent me his dick with the necklace on it. After he's gone through all this to like humble himself and make this amends. And then he was like, and here's my dick. And so this is before you entered sobriety, correct? I was in and out for 10 years. Okay, so it's like a adult moment. <laughs> I was just having this conversation with someone about like attraction rather than promotion. And it's instances like that where people make amends and then do fucked up shit where you're like, oh, fuck the program. Like, why would I ever want to join with these fools if like this dude made an amends to me and then sent me a picture of his dick? Like, I, like why would I want to get involved with any? And that's, I mean, that's why... For for me, like I practice, I try to practice that. Like I, I yeah. know we're a podcast about recovery, but like I really my focus as as a as a sober person is to, you know, to recognize that like, you know, am I living a life with a lantern of sobriety that shows a light that people would want to partake in using? Or am I trying to am I trying to just say all the right things so that you'll think I'm okay? Because I'm capable of regurgitating anything in any of the literature to make you think I'm okay. And I'll be completely dying inside, but you know, I have to take myself out of the situation. It's just like, if a new person were to see me or hear me, am I carrying myself in such a way that sobriety seems appealing? You know, and that's what I, that's what I try to do. I filter it because it, 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 I mean, albeit funny, like quote unquote, like that's just, that's so fucking awful for anybody who's working a program that still acts like that. Like, it's like, what's the point? Just go shoot, go shoot heroin into your fucking necklace, necklace encrusted dick, please. I don't want you around. Well, weird because he lived in like North Carolina, so it's like you're not even sending your dick from like a driving distance. You know, like what am I gonna do? Like I'm not gonna be like, okay, come over, like let's do this. Like, are you cool around Coke? Um, this was for no one. <laughs> but then in terms of like amends that I made, some of them were like, it was like, oh, I guess going back to the whole thing, taking things, thinking I'm so much more important or that I cause somebody so much more harm. Mm-hmm. in situations and then being like what are you even talking about like I had this restaurant the only restaurant job I ever wasn't fired from and we had to hand in all our tips and they would like tip out and we claimed everything it was like a really nice inn in Old Lyme Connecticut and I would steal from my own tips like maybe ten dollars a night like if I made over 20 percent I'd be like he 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 and I would take less than twenty dollars and then I would like live in this, I'm going to get fired every day, like for months and months and months. Cause I'm going to get found out for like stealing from myself. And then I wouldn't let the support staff even help me. Cause I felt so guilty. Cause that was like mm-hmm. all stealing from them. 
Like if I took $20, that was a few dollars out of their pocket too. And um, I also obviously like emptied all the whipped cream canisters in the walk-in, like, right. Like you do. Like you do. As you do. Um, but I, I went home during August, 2020 on this like a men's tour, which was so delusional. Cause I was like, Hey, would you like to risk getting sick so I can feel better? Cause I'd like that. Let's set up a time. Um, and I, I was trying to get together with this old boss who like it's during COVID she has a baby and I'm still like, everything's closed. And I want to make an amends to her because I used to steal from my own tips. And she was like, I'm so confused. Can we just do this over the phone? She's like, I thought we were on good terms. And she was all like upset because she thought I was like, and I was like, oh no, I used to like steal $10 from myself sometimes. And she was like, Rebecca, she goes, I guess I can see why that would upset you. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, well, you know, if you had gotten, if I had gotten caught, it would have looked bad for you. She's like, I don't think really would have been on you. <laughs> like, yeah. It meant nothing. Like, I felt so guilty and shameful for so long. And it was like, she was like, honey, like it meant, like, I, I understand. Thank you for telling me. But it was like, not a big, not a big thing. It wasn't a thing. There's some amends yeah. that can be a letter or a card you know, with 20 extra bucks in it or something like, please buy some diapers for your child. <laughs> you know, like, like there are some amends that can be that way. And it's, you know, it's, but, but the fact that you wanted to make those amends, that's how so many amends are is like, oh, you thought that was a big deal. Oh, I haven't thought about that in a year. Oh my God. Oh, I mean, there's still yeah. some I can't make because it filters through that except when to do so would injure them or others. Like I had an ex mm -hmm. from way back whose last communications were, don't ever contact me again. And so when I was going through my first fourth step, I got to her name and I told my sponsor how it all went down and what happened. He's like, oh yeah, like you definitely would owe her an amends. On, however, she said, don't ever contact me again. And that fits into the category of when to do so and injure them or others. Like, I'm not going to blow past someone's request just to mm -hmm. clean up my side of the street. So it's like, you know, now in the relationships that I get in, it's like, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't push, you know, like I don't, I don't do any of those things. Like I don't, I don't push someone to their limits, you know, for my own sick satisfaction of like mental I guess quote-unquote games you know yeah 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 it's well, so hard it, to be like ex-boyfriends don't want to hear from me and then like stop myself like once I finally like get in touch like they've all blocked me and I'm like who I found this thing I found a way to get in touch with them and it's like oh they've blocked you on everything maybe they don't want to hear from you yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love those living amends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes we, you know, all we can do is reach out the best we can and be like, are you open to this? And if they're not, then that's cool, you know? And um, and I think too, that's why it is so critical to go over it with a sponsor because it, it's occurred to me that there are different gradients of amends, right? So there's like, there's your living amends, there's your sit down, talk about it amends, there's financial amends. And then there's the type of amends that comes with the prompt amends that comes with a 10th step. And I have to tell you, going through that in eight step with my sponsor, she was, I was like, thank God for the 10th step. She was like, you already made a 10th step about this. She was like, yeah. She was like, girl, cross that off next one, you know? And so like, like, thank God for that 10th step. But like how, 
kind of in terms of the 10 step, like one of those, one of those, um, things that we do is we make prompt amends when we fuck up. If you're a dick, just say, I was a dick, my bad. I'm gonna try not to do that again. And if it's a recurring problem, I'm gonna look into that pattern of that problem. And, um, and, and, uh, you know, the prayer, the meditation, the, the, for me, the exercise, like what's your daily get down for how you keep Rebecca Rush sane? My best days, which I haven't done this in a while, is if I can like not turn my phone on right away. If I go to a meeting first thing, it kind of fucks with me because then my friend and I will talk shit to each other through the meeting. And like, then I'll be like, oh, well, like you do. Like you do. I do that too. Me and my sponsor were in a meeting, a Zoom meeting last night, and the sound was off. And occasionally we'd be like, (laughs) my sponsor says it's good because it keeps me in the meeting. So, uh, But I, uh, I journal that one. I, I never miss almost. I journal three pages. I do the morning pages thing and try to meditate and I go to a meeting. And then this morning I did a little yoga, which I haven't done in a while, but that's part of like a good morning for me. And then in terms of like writing, if I don't get writing by a certain time, it's just not going to happen that day. So that mm. has to be like, I was on a really good consistent thing for a minute where I would wake up, my phone would be off. I would journal, meditate, do a little yoga, and then write at least a thousand words when I was working on my book before I turned my phone on, like all those mm. things had to happen. Obviously take my dog out. Wow. That's quite a routine. I, I respect you. That's amazing. I love that routine. That's incredible. Do you ever put yourself under too much pressure to do the routine? And then you beat up on yourself for getting away from it? Yeah, because I like wake up and I do Marco Polo with one of my best friends back east, which are these like little video messages you send to each other. And I'll get like two like ah in the phone and then the phone drains me and then I get off track with my thing and then I'm like behind on the day. So then I got to skip the things that make me okay. I'm like, oh, I don't have time to be okay today. We're going to rush forward into whatever the day has. Mm, when When I start with my phone, like I'm already in reaction mode and it's like other people's priorities like emails and all that stuff is now oh mm. it's the worst yeah it's uh it's definitely uh i gotta get to this now i gotta respond to this now i gotta do this now it's like man you were just asleep like you don't gotta fucking respond to that shit like you don't gotta fucking clap back at that fucking shithead on tiktok like have a coffee first and then like make the burn real good yeah, you know? journaling the three pages and the meditation, like the coffee is, and usually I go to a 7.30 a.m. meeting. Those are my yeah. main things that I have to do every morning. I cannot, I cannot meditate for the life of me until I've had coffee. I, I wish I wasn't such a coffee fiend, but like coffee, if I don't have it, it blocks me from my higher power, which is probably why I should stop drinking coffee. But it's like, I've tried, I've tried to wake up and then fucking meditate. And it's just like, there's, there's like, it's like, we're not, we're not getting there, bro. Like there's no, this is a do not pass go, do not collect $200 situation. I don't know. Life is short. uh, The meeting comes in. So I'll wake up, take my dog out, make coffee and then sit down in front of the meeting and allow like my medication to kick in and my coffee to kick in. And then at the end of the meeting, that's when like journal meditation needs to happen. Yeah. 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 As long as I cannot, if there's like a bad speaker or something, forget it. Now I'm all up in my phone. Now, 
<laughs> now I'm like, girl, you check this shit out. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. I think we're yeah. human. Trust, trust me, if if we had each other's numbers, like you you'd be getting the same messages that I said to other people. <laughs> I'm not the most spiritually fit in the meeting. Oh my god. Oh my god. I think I think we're all just doing our best, you know, and and sometimes sometimes you got to acknowledge that was a crazy share. <laughs> Sometimes you got to be like, do you hear that crazy shit? <laughs> but uh, I had tweeted this the other day. If you don't have somebody you can text in a Zoom meeting, uh, if you can talk shit to over text in a Zoom meeting, you don't have friends in that meeting. That's like my, that's, I was just like, occasionally you got to be like, girl, here we go. Um, oh, about the guy falling asleep. I sent that to Amy Dresner. I was like, yo. And she was like, I'm retweeting this. Oh yeah. Oh girl. I have okay. fallen asleep. I've fallen asleep in a meeting. My first week, my first week of zoom meetings, I was sitting there and all of a sudden I hear Anna, Anna, you're asleep. And I was like, what? <laughs> I got too comfy. <laughs> with the, with the spiritual practice, uh, do you, do you have a relationship with a higher power? If so, what's that look like? I, uh, I mean, I've always believed in like higher power, like in like spirit guides and like reincarnation and all this other stuff. But I'll get in these like weird things where I'm like, well, they don't believe in me, though. And like they don't want me to be happy like everybody else. They want to be happy, but not me. So I have to like continuously remind myself and like I'll connect to my higher power by like connecting to my guides and be like, it's like this whole hierarchy of like my guides are here for me. Like I can't fathom god as much as i can fathom like all god's underlings um that makes more sense to me so i'll just try to like i'll try to check in and remind myself that my sponsor always says god wouldn't give you the talent you have without a plan for it so i'll go down that kind of road with like remembering that and sometimes i'll even be like what would god have me do because it probably wouldn't be whatever i'm thinking about to do i love that i love that rebecca this has been a fantastic podcast. You've been a delight. I don't want you to go down some anxiety porthole. You listen <laughs> to me. I am not, I am not blowing smoke up your ass. This has been a great episode. You've been fantastic. You did you not know, bomb. You did, you not, did bomb. not bomb. <laughs> I do want to tell, I, we have one last question. And that question is, what would you tell somebody just like you in the world? I think I would say that it's okay to try harder. You know, it's like, it's okay. Like all we can really control is our effort and our perception. So like, it's okay to try. Yeah, oh, I love that. Where can people find you and all the beautiful things that you're doing? Okay, so I'm Rebecca Rush 639 on Instagram and Twitter. And I uh, am launching my vulnerability themed comedy show, which does include audience interaction at the Hollywood Improv, November 16th. Uh, very like my guest headliner has been a household name since the nineties. Come show up. Tickets are at hollywoodimprov.com. And I'm also launching a new podcast with my friend, Lauren, who runs the brutal recovery meme page. It's called mm -hmm. brutal vulnerability. Um, when we talk about things that polite ladies don't discuss. So our first episodes deep dive into the psych wards in the 1800s. Um, oh, nice. I love that. Yeah, vulnerability, brutal vulnerability, Rebecca Rush 639. That's where you can find me. Yay. Awesome. And if you didn't like anything I said and you don't think I'm interesting or funny, 
Uh, my OnlyFans is RR639. There you go. Dave, where can people find you in all your things? Well, my OnlyFans is not existent, so I guess I'm just going to have to pitch the comedy. Uh, at Yates Comedy, Y-A-T-E-S Comedy, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all that shit. Uh, and if you want to support me directly, you can either come to a show uh, or you can buy my hot sauce. I make and sell my own brand of hot sauce called Ha Ha Hot Sauce. So you can go to HaHaHotSauce.com and that money goes directly to me. So Anna, where can people find you and the podcast? If you would like to find me and this podcast and maybe some pictures of my loud ass cat, who has just been bombing this whole podcast, you can find me at Anna V is fun. That's Anna with two N's on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all those social medias. You can go to my website, AnnaValenzuela.com. You can find this podcast at 12 Q pod on all the social medias and uh, keep it, keep an eye out. Uh, I'll be going on tour. Um, We're driving back from fest in uh, Halloween weekend in Gainesville, Florida. So we're going to drive back across the country. So if you listen to this podcast, you might actually like get to see me do stand up, which is amazing wherever you are. So, um, so check that out. And um, Rebecca, how we end this podcast. Oh, and 12 Q pod, all the social medias, including the Gmails, follow us, rate and review us, please. We would love it. You want to talk about, you want to talk about vulnerability, girl. We do, we do the vulnerability up in this podcast. We've been doing it since 2015. We got this, we get vulnerable. So, and tell your friends about this, about this, um, uh, this experience. Cause, um, I find that when most people learn about this podcast, they're like, that was actually really, really cool. And so, yeah, check it out. And, um, how we end this podcast every time, Rebecca, is if nobody's told you this today, we love you. We love you, Rebecca. Thanks for hanging with us. Nice. And Dave, if nobody's told you this today, we love you. Bullshit. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. You were so loved. Yeah. And um, and if you're listening to this and nobody's told you this today, we love you. Love you, everybody. Thanks for listening.